miss these corrals. Okay. Oh, this is a much better microphone. We're going to go ahead and get started uh, this morning. And uh, glad uh, that y'all could be here and glad that uh, we've got some folks here uh, who I will make introduce themselves. Uh, but uh, John O'Lineball here uh, lives over in England and for the longest time uh, wanted to get together uh, folks from a reform background uh, and folks from a Lutheran background and also get some Anglicans in there uh, and talk about the question of law and gospel and where there might be some commonality in those traditions uh, and there where there might not be and, um, and how do we work uh, through those things. Uh, but also... Uh, how that theology impacts ministry day to day, not just uh, talking about ideas, but realizing that this has implications on people. And so uh, I'm going to ask these guys to introduce themselves in a couple of minutes, and then we're going to talk and give you all plenty of time uh, to answer, uh, answer questions, because I know you'll be ready for it, but you all to ask them. Let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, for calling us to this place, uh, for the work that you have done this week in the midst of this colloquium. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would continue to uh, use it and that uh, in all of it, uh, your name might be glorified, but Lord, that you would also uh, minister through it uh, to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, if y'all would introduce yourselves. Yeah, uh, so as Andrew just said, I'm John O'Lineball, and... I'm an ordained minister in the Diocese of Central Florida, but I currently live in the United Kingdom, and I teach theology over there. And, man, I've been coming to the Advent for quite some years now. First came as a Lenten preacher. I've done that a couple times. I spoke at a men's retreat one time, and the Advent really feels to me like a home away from home, and I'm always grateful to be back. I value your hospitality and the ministry, and I just want to say thank you for hosting this event that we've had, for inviting me back, and uh, it's really been great, so thank you. Well, I'm Wesley Hill. I teach New Testament at Trinity School for Ministry uh, near Pittsburgh, which I know is a place known uh, to, to many of you in this room. Um, and I have also been to the Advent, not, not as long as, as Jono has, but it's, it's begun to feel like home to me as well. I, I think this is my uh, fourth or fifth visit to the Advent, and I'm looking forward to being back um, in this coming year's Lenten uh, series. Oh, you're not supposed to give that away. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> What's Are wrong that, with that you, Wes? under wraps? Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, it's uh, the worst kept secret. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I, I was here sort of as a, as an, a very interested observer. I, I spend my time teaching New Testament, but I like to overhear these uh, theological conversations about law and gospel, and, and uh, hopefully I can um, contribute in that capacity today as well. So great to be here. My name is Mark Mattis. I'm a pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. This is the second time I've been here at Cathedral Church of the Advent. I was part of the Lenten preaching series maybe about five years ago. I don't exactly remember. It's just a great joy and treasure for me to be here. The colloquium was really exciting, really fun. I think a lot was accomplished. I also, for worship, for me this morning, was very inspiring and powerful in every way. Formulative for me. I, I grew up in Seattle, Washington, and um, I did have uh, some connection with St. Mark's Cathedral there, especially with the Sunday evening Compline service. And for me, as a teenager, that was very important as a part of my Christian growth. And to be here, to have the words of the Book of Common Prayer, uh, the anthem, the, the sermon, all of it very powerful, moving for me today. Really appreciate it. 
Well, you, you may have noticed that nobody up here said I'm uh, a Presbyterian. Uh, so uh, those guys got out of here as fast as they could uh, and, um, uh, and took off back to where they – but we, we had some guys uh, – we had a uh, – actually coming from the reform perspective, um, uh, an Episcopal priest who teaches at Virginia Seminary up in uh, – outside of Washington, D.C., and then we had some guys from Reformed Theological Seminary who were in town, uh, and there was a smattering of, uh, of other Lutherans who have uh, gone back to um, St. Louis and the Midwestern enclaves to which they came. Uh, you know, w- one of the funny things is that you know, when we first announced that we were doing this, now first let me just say the fact that a Lutheran said that it was very exciting really should say something. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, why would... Well, one, why would an Episcopal church be hosting something like this? Uh, and two, why did it take an Episcopal church to bring something like this uh, about? And uh, many of you who have been here for a while understand and know um, about the whole idea of the law and the gospel and uh, in God's word and how that manifests itself here in the life of the Advent. Uh, that's been around uh, way before me and uh, continues to be uh, one of our hallmarks. Uh, but also the tremendous overlap uh, between the traditions and uh, Anglicanism in the Episcopal Church. Uh, some of you may know that in the early 1550s, right before Mary burned Cranmer, uh, there was an attempt by Thomas Cranmer to get Calvin and Melanchthon to come over and have a general council of the church, that all the Protestants would get together as a response to Trent. Uh, now, that never happened, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, also uh, John Knox, uh, the father of Scottish Presbyterianism, uh, was offered a bishopric in the Church of England, uh, which he refused uh, for stupid reasons. But uh, he went up to Scotland and, uh, and, and took off from there. And uh, Mark is a part of the ELCA, uh, and you may or may not know that, but the Episcopal Church has uh, an agreement with them where our ministers and their ministers are interchangeable. Uh, and so uh, Mark... Uh, uh, if we had thought about it, could have done communion uh, this morning uh, at the 11 o'clock. Uh, but sorry we didn't think about that. I'm honored to. Yeah, so, well, God bless you. So, well, let's talk about this. For some people who are just like, uh, is this just an academic endeavor? What, what is the law and what is the gospel and why is it worth talking about? Yeah, so um, before maybe I try to say what they are, maybe it's easier to think about the why question first. I don't know, maybe I'm just stalling, but... Um, <laughs> Let me just tell you about, uh, real quickly, a character in a book. There's a book called My Son is a Splendid Driver, which is very much worth reading. But there's a, a woman in the book who's just called Mother. And Mother's got a tough situation. Okay? Mother had a son that she really loved. This is sort of part one of the book. And through a very ordinary set of circumstances, but that the mother thought she should have been able to avoid, the son wound up dying. She's never been able to forgive herself. Fast forward to part two of the book. It's about a decade, decade and a half later. And the family's still struggling with this. And something else, crisis two, has struck the family. And through an act of the husband, the mother's experiencing a lot of shame. She has a secret. And she can't really face the day. And she won't really go out in public. But she will go on her front porch in the morning before other people start coming out. And the son who's still living, who's the narrator of the story, he says, every morning, mother would sit on the front porch and she would watch Mrs. Holt, the woman who lives across the street, as she would leave for the Catholic Church. And then he says this, Mother never missed a day watching Mrs. Holt, 
And Mrs. Holt never missed a day. And Mother said, I wish I had a God to pray to now. But I can't seem to find one. And then here's the key sentence for me. Mother said, church is not a place you go with troubles. Church is a place you go when things are going well and you have a new hat to wear. So Mother had this idea, this perception, that what Christianity was, what the church was, was a place you go when everything was going well and you sort of come together to celebrate how well things are going. But she knew that the one place you don't go if you have a real problem, a real secret, some real suffering, some real shame, the one place you don't go is church, she thought. So how does that happen? How do we confuse Christianity and think that it's kind of a, a, a gathering for people who have it together rather than a place where we minister the Jesus who said, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance? And one of the things that was said a lot in the 16th century during the Protestant Reformation is the way this happens, the way Christianity gets confused like this, is when you confuse, that is, you think the law and the gospel, which are both God's good words to us, when you think they're one thing rather than two things. Because when you think they're one thing, then you think that the way God finally relates to you and what he finally says to you is going to be on the basis of whether or not you do what he says, which is his law, or whether or not, or as opposed to that, whether he relates to you on the basis of what he's done for you in his son, Jesus Christ. And that's the gospel. And you see, if Christianity is finally about the law, God's good law, well, then don't go to church if you've got troubles. But if Christianity is finally about what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is a friend of sinners, well, then it makes a lot of sense for church to be a place to go to when you have troubles. And that's the sort of thing we cared about this week. What are these two things of God, and why do they really matter, and how might you, able, how might you be able to help mother and people like her? So that's kind of what we were up to. I don't know if, Mark, you want to jump in? Or I really in? appreciate what you have to say, and, and um, part of what I'm going to say is what I said last night, mm -hmm. but it doesn't hurt to repeat. I'm, I'm hearing so much more clearly what you said last night, and I so much want to affirm it uh, about a church as a place to go with troubles because the law levels us all. Mm -hmm. It equalizes us, us mm -hmm. all. Uh, uh, it, there's, it, in terms of its accusing us and reducing us, whittling us down, uh, when we think that we can use the law to gain brownie points with God, then maybe we could kind of look down upon others. Well, look at I pray far more than they do. I maybe prayed a half hour today. These people don't even say grace in the restaurant before their meal. Look how much better I am. But, you know, there's always somebody who prayed way more than you. And so they have a higher stature with God. And so if we want to try to use the law to... Uh, win points with God or to show how much better of a Christian we are than others, then we end up becoming so much like the Pharisees who Jesus was opposed to and who, who put Jesus on the cross. So a common example I like to use and I used last night um, was, was the story that I think most of us here are familiar with from John chapter 8 about the woman caught in adultery. Because, because Law isn't just the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5. Law is written right into human 
society, how we relate to one another. It's written right into creation. And at some point, uh, for each one of us, the law will come and accuse us, as it did for the woman caught in adultery. So the law is holy, uh, true, just. It is right. It is God's word. And the word condemns her, in fact, condemns her to death. And one of the things I said last night, I, I, I didn't mean to be too shocking, but, but, but I think we have to understand how it is two words. That's why I was getting at. The command from the law is different than mercy or promise given in the gospel. Because mercy for the woman isn't with Jesus saying, well, aim for her head. Are you following me? You see, that wouldn't be the merciful thing to do. The merciful thing to do is neither do I condemn thee and go and sin no more. So mercy is the validation which Jesus gives as God in the flesh. In a sense, when Jesus does that, it's almost God, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, as we confessed in the creed this morning, against God who has revealed his will in the law. And in a sense, the woman flees from the God of the commands to the God of mercy. Now, how is God one? Well, that we confess by faith. That we confess by faith. And ultimately, we will see by sight. But we need to cling to the validation given to us in Jesus Christ. Neither do I condemn thee. Not only said to that woman, but said to each one of you, said to me. That puts us on an equal playing field in the church. So that we don't have to look down on others or look up to others, but we can look each other in the eye as equals, as perfectly free lords of all, subject to none, but then perfectly dutiful servants of all, subject to all, Go and sin no more. That is, live a life of embracing fellow sinners. Wes, uh, you're, you're not up here just because you're handsome. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, you want to add to that? Um, I, I could maybe just add a footnote, uh, a sort of exegetical footnote. To that. I, I know, I know we, we all in this room are aware of this, but it, it, is, it is perhaps worth underscoring that these two terms, law and gospel, are, are deeply rooted in Scripture. Um, they, they grow right out of one of Paul's earliest letters, uh, his epistle to the Galatians, where he is sort of white-hot with anger because it seems that the good news of God's love in Jesus is under threat. Um, so these are not just terms that you know Lutherans and Reformed have, have come up with as a convenient way of... Um, doing theology, they, they really grow out of, out of the earliest portions of, of the preaching of the gospel in the New Testament. And of course, the, the situation is, Paul has, as he says, publicly portrayed Jesus Christ as crucified to the Galatians. And the Galatians, quite apart, remember they're Gentiles, quite apart from doing any deeds of the law, they have been justified. They, they have received the Spirit, and they have, they have uh, been grafted into Christ and clothed with Christ in baptism. And then these missionaries come along later, after Paul, these Jewish Christian missionaries, and they say, well, wait a minute, you need to add uh, law observance to what you already have, what Paul's already given you. And so the Galatians are deeply confused. 
And so Paul writes this letter, one of his earliest letters, one of his most impassioned letters. And we talked this week in our colloquium about how Luther was really captivated by, by Galatians. And, and this whole way of speaking about law and gospel grows directly out of that. And Paul says to the Galatians, we are not justified by doing the works that the law commands us to do. We're justified solely through this faith in Christ crucified, who's, who, who you've been with from the beginning. So maybe just a little, little footnote. Yeah. What, it helps, uh, you know, because one of the things that, that people might think, or, and I've even heard people say is, you know, I'm, I'm into the God of the New Testament. I like him, but this other God in the Old Testament, I, I want nothing to do with. Mark, you want to jump in? Or? I'd love to. <laughs> uh, you probably could have figured that out. When I was a preacher back in the day, uh, one of the uh, elders in the back, when I would go on too long, would actually start to point at his watch. So if I do go on too long, then one of you go ahead and do that. I'll, I'll, I'll stop. But um, I teach undergraduates. I teach college students. And in fact, uh, I often use textbooks from your former dean, Paul Zoll. Grace and Practice has been a perfect textbook, as well as he has a little book on a primer of Christianity. Both those books I found really beneficial. A number of, of courses and work really well with students, especially uh, Grace and Practice is so hands-on, and the primer is, is right at where uh, my students are at as undergraduates, so they've been very effective uh, things. But I often bring that up with my students. Oh, uh, God is wrath, God is love. Now, Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, which would you associate? Old Testament would be God of love or God of wrath? What do you think they say? Wrath. Uh, New Testament, God is love or God is wrath? What do you think they say? Well, then I, I instantly I just say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I fear no evil. Well, you know, know it all. Now, where is that found, Old Testament or new? Old. Is that a God of love? You bet. Book of Revelation. You're aware of it. Is that Old Testament or New Testament? New. Yeah. So we can't really make that distinction, can we? Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not in, in those terms. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that. And the only thing I might want to add is that one of the things we insist when we talk about the distinction between law and gospel, the way God relates to sinners through his command to show them that they have sinned, to show them that they need Jesus, to show them that they're dead and need to be made alive, and the gospel, God's way of raising the dead and rescuing sinners in Jesus' name, we're not making a distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're making a distinction between the way God has always worked as he encounters sinners to put them to death and to raise them to life, whether we're talking about Abraham, whether we're talking about the Israel that came out of Egypt, whether we're talking about King David, whether we're talking about the voice of the prophets, or whether we're talking about John the Baptist, or Peter, or Paul, whoever it may be. This is a way of talking about how God acts in the whole of Scripture and in the whole of history as a God who does what he has to do with sinners, which is not make them better, but to put them to death that he can do what he really wants to do, which is raise them to life and live with them forever. Yet, not just the, the distinction between the law and the gospel and God's word, but how they're rightly applied, how they're rightly ordered uh, in the life uh, of a Christian. Um, you know, there, there seems to be a propensity in, in our culture right now to 
want to pole vault over the law and get to the gospel and can misconstrue that. But can you talk about that a little bit? Yep. I mean, one example that came up last night that I think is helpful. So the rule of thumb that Mark mentioned last night, sort of for pastoral care, is we often say that the law is for the hard-hearted, the gospel is for the broken-hearted, or sometimes slightly more fully. What you do is you use the law to afflict the comfortable, People who are already comfortable need to have the law so that they'll be afflicted and realize they're not fine, they have a problem, and they need Jesus. But you use the gospel to comfort the afflicted, to deliver those who have been diagnosed. But one of the questions in pastoral care, and I mean that in the broadest sense, I mean with your children, I mean with your friends, with the people you might be ministering to who are younger than you or older than you or your peers, you always have to listen to who you're actually talking to. Are you talking to the rich young ruler in the Gospels who when he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus basically says, well, you know, keep the commandments. And the guy says, well, all these I have kept. He's comfortable. And Jesus says, well, one thing you lack, just one little thing, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And then the guy says, went away sorrowful. Jesus has afflicted the comfortable. But first he discerned who he was talking to, someone who was comfortable. But Mark's example of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, this woman is not comfortable. She is afflicted, and she is right under the curse of the law, thinking she's about to suffer its death sentence. And Jesus doesn't have a word of affliction for her. He has a word of comfort for her. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. A word of forgiveness and a word of freedom. And so the difference there in knowing how to apply it is, who are you talking to? And this is why what we always try to do in the church is to not say we want to get rid of the law and preach the gospel, but we minister God's two words, law and gospel. And neither of them can go away. How do you, how do you discern that? Because you, know, you read in the synoptics where the rich young ruler goes away sad. And the disciples even say, well, if he doesn't get in, then who gets into the kingdom of heaven? And then you got the eye of the camel through the eye of the needle stuff. But so in that situation, you can almost see the guy walking away. And there's a part of me that says, go after him, Jesus. Don't, don't let him go away. But conversely, in John chapter 8, with the woman caught in adultery, I'm ready to jump on board the stone wagon. I mean, just sort of like, like what do you mean you're going to go that easy on her? Uh, in, in both cases, the human heart cries out that it's a miscarriage of justice. Oh, oh you know, sad at me. <laughs> I, I'm saying, would you like to speak? <laughs> it's a miscarriage of justice. God will get his due uh, no matter what. The wages of sin is what? Death. Death. And we're all under that condemnation, are we not? The point is, in, in that Jesus Christ has borne our sin taken our death so that we can have new life. So justice is done. What is truly just before God, because there really, a ladder between us and God is a one-way street. It, it's, it's a one-way ladder. It's an elevator that only goes down, where Jesus has come down to us. Because there's no amount of things that we could do to justify ourselves before God, because God is always greater. There's no proportion. There's no analogy. God goes beyond analogies or proportions and becomes the infant Jesus, becomes the man Christ, 
dies for us. So the gospel is something far greater than something that we could offer back to God. And in terms of nature, grace, and glory, in glory we will understand, we will be privy to the insight of, of how God has arranged or designed this world. But, but in this life, we're not in a... Yes, the law justly condemns people, and there's instances that don't seem all that just, but ultimately the justice that we have before God, the only thing that really counts or matters to God is faith in Jesus Christ, as John will preach this morning. That is what is well-pleasing to God, because that's finally the only thing that we ever could. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And I don't say this, I, there's kickback, because some people who don't like the law gospel distinction is saying, well, all you want to do is just make a bunch of slackers. That's what this is all about, is just slack Christians. And you're either slackers because you really don't want to do it, or you don't want to try, or you're too weak. And I, don't, I think that misses all the point. The point is we are caught like the woman caught in adultery. We are like um, uh, David when Nathan comes to him and says, you are the man when he tells the story of that little ewe lamb after David's uh, and Bathsheba's uh, betrayal. Um, so um, I, I want to say one more thing. Many of my students don't come from a church background. And so I ask them, what do you think faith, what do you think religion, what do you think Christianity is all about? They don't even hesitate. It's about rules. And it really takes me aback. You know nothing about faith other than to say it's only about rules. What I want to hear is it's about mercy. But that's not what I've had in 23 years of teaching. I have never, ever heard one non-Christian say it's, the faith is about mercy. They only ever say it's about rules. I almost am apt to say if we're concerned about evangelism and reaching out to the unchurched, we almost can't be concerned enough about making this distinction between law and gospel. Invariably, it goes this way within the last three years or so. It's about rules, and what Christians are is they're all haters. And that's why I don't like Christianity. So it's, it's what they hear. Now, I, I have yet to say, hear a non-Christian say, oh, it's all about mercy, and that's why I don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> I'm waiting for that day, but it hasn't come. Instead, it's all about rules, and you folks are haters. It makes me sad in a way, because where, why is the gospel not being heard? Why is it not being heard? So, if, so you're, yes, you're a Christian, and, um, and you've heard the gospel. Um, after you're, you've been crushed by the law, then you hear the gospel, and you are given the ability to turn to Jesus. Uh, and what role does the law and gospel play then in the Christian life? Yeah, I'll take a first stab um, at this very small question, but... Um, <laughs> There's a couple things you have to say here. What I said at one point when I was talking here, that the law and the gospel always need to be ministered and preached and heard. And that never stops in this life. I don't just mean for the non-Christian. 
And I don't just mean for the Christian. I mean, that's what always has to be preached to all people. And I mean both the law and the gospel. And so if the question is, well, okay, when God has done his work of diagnosing a sinner and then delivering them through his law and his gospel, what does the law do for that person now? There's a couple things you might want to say about this. The most obvious thing you want to say, and this won't be any surprise to you if you know any other human beings, is that when a person becomes a Christian, now I, this is sort of a theological shock. When I tell theologians this, they sort of scratch their head and think, you know, I think he's right, but I never thought about that. But everybody else actually knows this. When a person becomes a Christian, they don't stop being a person or a human. It's a shocking thing, but it's true. And what that means, because we still live in this world, we still live in the flesh, and we're still subject to the curse of death. Right? And if you're ever wondering, have we arrived at the end? Have we made it? This was a question that came up sometimes in the early church, believe it or not. Has Jesus already come back and I just didn't notice? This comes up like three or four times in the New Testament. The only question you have to ask is, do people die? If the answer is yes, we're not there yet, okay? Because the wages of sin is death, right? That's the curse. And because we still live there, we still need the law to do the work of showing us our sin. We still need to hear that we need Jesus. And one of the reasons we need that is because whatever it means to mature or grow in the Christian life, it does not mean to become a kind of Christian adult in the traditional sense that we mean that, to become more independent and self-capable. It means to become more dependent mm -hmm. on Jesus. Growing as a Christian cannot mean needing Jesus less. Mm -hmm. It must mean needing and resting and trusting in Jesus more. And the law is always going to do the work of showing us that we need to. It's always going to do that. But the other thing that we need to keep hearing, and this is sometimes a surprise too, is Christians need to hear the gospel. It's so easy to think that the gospel is just the thing you say to non-Christians so that they can become Christians. But now that they've become Christians, well, now we can get on with the real business, give them the rules, mm -hmm. and let them do the real business of living the Christian life. And no wonder mother won't go to church with her troubles or your students mm -hmm. think Christianity is about rules and haters. Mm -hmm. Because we think the gospel is just how you get in, right? But that's not true either. Because what we need to hear is that we need Jesus and that Jesus has given himself for us. And unless you're dead, you need to keep hearing that. I'll, uh, I want you to jump in, but I'll, I'll make this very <laughs> quick. In. I'll make this very quick. Um, look at Romans. First, uh, first three and a half chapters, it's a voice of condemnation, whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile. Uh, chapters, uh, the latter half of chapter three on to chapter eight is gospel, gospel promise over and over. Um, chapter 9 through 11 talks about what is the relationship between Israel and the church. And then chapter 12 through 15 is what's called paranesis. So you're a New Testament scholar. Is that, I, I'm intentionally setting you up. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, um, I just finished teaching a class at Trinity on, on Galatians. And 
there, there's, a, there's a curious thing that happens toward the end of Galatians. Um, at the beginning of chapter 6, Paul says uh, to the Galatians, bear one another's burdens, and in this way, fulfill the law of Christ. And there's a couple things that's interesting about it. Um, that, that word that he uses, fulfill, is not the usual word that someone would have, would have reached for to talk about obeying the law. The, the normal word would have been doing. You do the law. You, you read it and you try to conform your life to it. And Paul seems to think that's not the way the Christian life goes. Uh, it's, it's as we have been brought into this life in Christ uh, through free gift, through free justification, we now are filled with gratitude and love and we, we want to serve each other. We want to bless each other. We want to love our neighbor because we have this new power at work in us, uh, making us delight in God in a way we never have. And what happens is the law, as it's been embodied and grasped by Christ, gets fulfilled as a byproduct. It's not that we sort of orient our lives around it and try to make that the motivating impulse of our lives. It's the law, the law gets done. It gets fulfilled. But what we're looking at is Christ, and we're seeing his death for us. We're seeing his free gift to us, and we begin to love our neighbor as ourselves. Can I just say one more quick quick follow-up, too? I really appreciate everything that's been said. Isaiah says, a dimly burning wick I will not, snuff out. Yeah, will not quench, will not snuff out. You, you have to look at the, the, the woman caught in adultery, how much joy she must have felt in being rescued. Jesus himself is willing to be stoned on her behalf. How much, how much joy she must have felt. And then to follow with what you're saying about Paul's sense of newness, remember what Paul says in the, 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 the paranetic part of, of Romans. Do you remember it? Rejoice with those who rejoice. rejoice. Weep with those who weep. In other words, when your life is so transformed by this mercy and Jesus is validating you, you can start walking in somebody else's own shoes. You rejoice with those who rejoice. You weep with those who weep. I'm going to open up for any uh, questions that, that folks might have. Uh, <clears throat> I am recently retired university professor, so I identify with you. Um, I have 11 grandchildren who are all hitting that age uh, where they, they are matching up. And they're coming to us and talking to us about the things that are on their minds. They are not marrying. They are living together and not marrying. And I don't know what, what does Jesus say? Is there law? Uh, does Jesus have a law about marrying instead of just living together? What do you say to this generation who are pretty much uh, universally just living together. Dean Pearson. Yeah. So how do you, do you yeah. 
Yeah, in those situations, because you love them, let me see, see if I can tease this out a little bit. You love them and you want the best for them. So you want to say the truth to them, but not alienate them, to, to push them away. So how do you minister to, to folks? And that's a very good example in our culture of, of cohabiting without being married. Um, how do you do that? Yeah. I don't have an answer to your question. I'm not going to pretend to. It's a, it's a rich question. It's a deep and hard question. It's one many of us are experiencing. And so I think it's really helpful that you raised it. But it's precisely the kind of question that what we're talking about here wants to really live long with and think about. Because what we're talking about is saying, OK, in those situations, not just as an idea, but with your actual grandchildren. This is not just some world issue. Now this has come right into your family. And you're not just talking about what's on the news, you're talking about what's in your living room and this person that you love, right? And so it's not an issue anymore. It's not some cause. It's not some agenda. It's Jack or Mary or whatever it might be, right? And this is where the pastoral rubber hits the road. And again, in that broad sense of you're doing ministry now, right? And the question is, who are you actually talking to? And it's not as simple as this issue. Let me give you an example of a slightly different issue, but I think is still contemporary. And I'm not going to say anything sort of value judgment about it, but just to give you an example of how a similar issue can be very different. Three times in my own ministry, and I'm not that old and I've never worked in a church, so, but this already happened three times. I've had people call me and say, can I come ask you a question? And three times it's been the exact same question. There's been other times people have asked a question, but three times I've been asked this question, seemingly a little bit out of the blue. Okay, here was the question. What does God think about abortion? Okay, I had a relationship of some nature with all these people, but not the same, and the question seemed a little out of the blue. But here's what I learned through fumbling through these pastoral experiences, and I would have been helpful to know it before, but sort of learned it after. All the, those three people were not all asking the same question. They all said, what does God think about abortion? It was almost verbatim. They were all asking different questions. Two people had stopped by my office when their next stop that they had scheduled was an abortion clinic. Hmm. Okay, That was two times. That's one kind of question. Someone else who asked me that had had an abortion 10 years ago and had never been able to get over it, was suffering, couldn't sleep. Mm -hmm. That's a different question, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. And my point in saying that is you really need to hear who you're talking to. It's not just a matter of, is this right or is this wrong? But what are they asking you? Are they saying, does God love me? I feel that this is wrong, but does God love me? Do you love me? Or are they saying, I know this is right, dang it, and I don't care what you think, Grandma. You know, I mean, what's going on? Who are you talking to? And without trying to answer your question, I'm just saying that's the kind of sort of deep thing that this requires, really listening to the question that's really being asked. right? Yeah, and to stem off of, um, of that and what y'all been talking about last night, um, you know, the condemnation of the law and the Decalogue in, in particular, um, how there's condemnation there, how we're, natu how we're condemned, um, even like in the Sermon on the Mount, he extends it saying, you know, um, if you've hated somebody in your heart, you're a murderer. If you've lusted after someone, you're a, you've, you've committed adultery. Um, how the love there is also, Jonna, what you were talking about last night when you said uh, how a parent uh, maybe 
says something to their children and they, um, in that, in their conviction, people think, or the child thinks, God is far from me, when actually the grace is, is right there and they're set up for grace. And um, I think in the way that how God, how all the commandments had their, their negative, you know, don't, don't murder, don't covet, you kind of see that in how a loving parent, how maybe a loving father maybe seeing their uh, child start to touch a hot stove, mm-hmm. for example, doesn't sit down and say, now this is what's wrong, mm-hmm. you know, go through all the details on why this is not a good idea. Yeah. He says, stop, don't yeah. do it. And it kind of points to the urgency of sin mm-hmm. and eternity. And, um, yeah. you know, it's, it just opens up the fact that we live in between two judgments, our judgment that's in the past that was put on Christ and mm-hmm. the judgment of the the world and the future and um, how we need to warn the world of upcoming judgment and, um, and what you had said on how um, after I left last night I was thinking it's really interesting how God reveals himself and we know all of his characteristics through our fallen state of uh, we know he's loving because we're not deserving of love or if there was no poor we wouldn't know what compassion was or uh, if we didn't know suffering, we wouldn't know what Christ went through. And so um, yeah. just to be, just to, I don't know, there's that con- condemnation, but you can see God in his love saying, stop, this is, this yeah. is not yeah. right. And g- given who we are, my aunt told me five times, don't touch the hot stove when I was five. What do you think I did? <laughs> do you think I ever touch hot, hot stoves now? No, but... With the uh, sinner, they're almost guaranteed to sin. Mark, uh, Jono mentioned Martha being bound, her will being bound. Could you maybe tie in the bound will or freedom no, that's what in I, Christ? That's what I was just trying to do. We're, we're bound to do it. Uh, along that line, you, Mark, said something, and you used the word, ultimately, this is the case. And we live in an instant generation and they don't mm-hmm. think about that ultimately this is going to be the outcome they're yeah. thinking of mm-hmm. the immediacy mm-hmm. one last question oh, we'll do, if we do it quick how does one address the question going back to ma'am's question we've shown mercy let's say but then how does one address the question well mommy we want to come visit yep. you and stay in your home uh, can I see? Can, uh, <laughs> uh, that's a kind laughter. I appreciate that. But it's natural for a young, a young person, a teenager, and into early 20s, who do you want to bond with? Your mom or dad, your grandmother, grandfather, or your peer group? Huh? Of course. If your peer group are all shacking up, chances are what are you going to do? Shack up. Does that mean you should change your, your values? No. Should you still love your kid? Yes. If they want to do that at your house, whose house is it? Yours. So far, nearly everything y'all have addressed is how Christians approach other Christians or people who are interested in being Christians. What about when you have a larger issue, for example, of what's been going on with terrorism? What do we forgive, and when do we go out and just kill them all? Yeah. No. First, second Samuel, first, second. 
mind where God should go out and not only kill all the men, but all the men, women, and children, and the cattle. Yeah, I mean, I would say just two things really briefly about that. Obviously not going to be a question I can answer in the 30 seconds we have left. But, I mean, I would say one thing that's helpful about what we're talking about is when we talk about God's law, we're talking about what God does to diagnose the real depths of the human problem. And it shows us that the problem is serious enough that I don't just need to be helped or cleaned up or given a little medicine. I need to be put to death and raised to do life. And that kind of deep diagnosis helps us make sense doesn't make it easy or make it go away or take away the tears, but it helps us make sense of the hell that the world can be. And this 2016 has been a hell in the world for a lot of people. Yeah. But I also want to say that one of the things that happens on the cross of Christ is that that cup of God's wrath that you see repeatedly getting poured out on the Canaanites and the Hittites, hmm. right, and all the other ites that Mark could tell you about back there. Right? That cup of wrath that goes because God is a holy God and has to be poured out on sin, it is poured out on sin precisely by being poured out on his son. And that means that there's hope. Maybe not a hope we can see, maybe not a hope we will ever get to see, but there is a hope with a God who can do that, who can raise the dead for all people and everywhere. So... <laughs> um, to your point, I think, um, and in response to your question, as I think it is especially important at this point in our time and in our history, and you prayed this today, Andrew, is what the world sees as Christianity. So I think that we are being called now to demonstrate. Um, what you just spoke of, that the, that the cup of wrath was uh, fulfilled, was satisfied on the cross, and that therefore we have the capacity of mercy in a world that so desperately needs it. All right, y'all. Uh, such a lighthearted uh, discussion. <laughs> Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God.